You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. New City. Happy Sunday. Good morning. It's been a week, hasn't it? It has been a week. I think so often in these moments, we we just begin to scramble because we don't know what to do. We don't know how um, to react. And I just want to encourage you this morning um, that as a follower of Jesus, we have um, a responsibility to call out evil, whatever side of the political aisle it falls on. And so feel a deep sense of confidence in your Lord that he's actually given you um, authority in this world to to bless others and to to walk in wisdom and love with others. And so, man, as, you're, as your friends are trying to process this, man, you get to be a voice of reasonableness in, in this world. And so I just want to encourage you to um, stay out of the comment section and trust the Lord Jesus. This is the perfect week to open the Bible um, and let the truth of God begin to renew your mind as you're trying to figure out how to respond in, in all of this. Um, We are going to be in Matthew 28 this morning, so I want to invite you to go ahead and turn there in in your Bibles. Um, We are in the middle of a three-week series right now that we call um, We Are New City, where we're really trying to ask a simple but profound question. What will our legacy be in 150 years? Now, there's a good chance that people won't know the name New City Church 150 years from now, but we will, in Jesus Christ, have a legacy. How have we stewarded the people and resources and dollars that God has has given us for the sake of his glory and the advancement of his kingdom? Last week, one of the things I said I think that's important to remember um, is that we so often don't rise to the level of the disciple-making vision that God has given us. We usually fall to the level of the culture and the systems of our church. And so what we're really trying to do is press into the Lord in this moment and say, God, how how might you change and shape the quality of our relationships together? And how might we actually be part of what you're about in this world. Matthew 28 shows us Jesus's agenda in this world. Let's go ahead and read the text. I know this is going to be awkward. It will be. Wherever you are, will you go ahead and stand up? Even if you're in your living room right now, stand up in reverence for the reading of God's word. We'll start in verse 16, Matthew 28. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word. You can have a seat. 
Last week, we talked about a culture of honor in our church that, that will become, Lord willing, this sort of launching pad for mission in our city that will color the quality of our relationships together. And this week, we begin to turn toward how do we begin to think about making disciples? This is really important. The best system for discipleship is a church filled with disciple makers. It's people living in obedience to Jesus. See, people who have seen Jesus and been captured by his beauty, people who have submitted to his authority, who've said, you call the shots, Jesus, on life. People who are not perfect morally, but more and more their life starts looking like Jesus's life if he had their friends, their bank account, and their spiritual gifts. People who suffer and struggle but yet, who out on the front lines get to see King Jesus at work. You see, friends, most people that I meet who are bored with their faith, who struggle the most deeply with doubts, who get stuck in habitual sin, hear me, are, are people who have traded in the calling to make disciples for a life of self-absorption that has Jesus' name attached to it. What if there were more? A walk with Jesus that still struggled, that still faced doubt, that still wrestled and faced trials, but was marked with a kind of grit and a kind of joy. Guess what's amazing about our King Jesus? King Jesus leads where the sparks fly out on the front lines. What if the front lines aren't overseas? Maybe they are eventually, but what if right now the front lines of walking with Jesus in this disciple-making mission were across the street? Matthew 28 is an invitation to every one of you this morning to join him there on the front lines. Why not take him up on it? You don't have to be powerful you just have to be present. You don't have to be able. You just have to be available. You don't even have to be a theological heavyweight. You just need humility. Why? Because Jesus doesn't only send us out. He first and foremost calls us to himself. If you're a note taker, here's the big point today. The calling on our lives if you're looking for your calling, here it is, Christian. The calling on our lives is in to discipleship and out to make disciples. Into discipleship to Jesus, out to make disciples. And so just a couple of encouragements here from Matthew 28. I want us to flesh out this calling together. Here's point number one. Discipleship starts with worship. Starts with worship. Um, when, when Aaron and I were engaged uh, several years back, um, you know how you get the, pre, the pre-wedding jitters just a little bit? You're, you're, you're getting closer and closer to being married to this person that you love. And, and the closer and closer that you get, you realize like, oh my gosh, she's a sinner. I didn't realize that up until now because she's so pretty. Um, and I'm a sinner and we're getting closer and closer. Um, and I remember hearing a sermon that felt like this pivotal sort of steadying word in my heart. And the, and the pastor, I forget who it was, he said, you're going to fight with someone. Do you want to fight with her? 
And I was like, huh. So I'm going to fight with someone. Let me write this down. I'm going to fight with someone. Do I want to fight with her? And, and the answer was like, absolutely. Who else would I want to fight with? This is, this is incredible. Um, the same principle applies when we begin to think about worship. Friend, you're going to worship. Who's it going to be? You're going to put someone or something at the center of yourself. Is it going to be the, true, the one true king of the universe? Look back at verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Imagine this moment, the surge of hope that, that comes over these people. The impossible has just happened. The Lord that they had laid their lives down for, that they just spent the last three years traveling around with in ministry, was just brutally executed a few days earlier. And there he is standing in front of them. Holes in his hands and his feet, resurrected in glory and power, standing. They saw the risen Christ. And while they thought everything was over, there he is somehow alive. It reminds me of like Ralphie in a Christmas story. He gets to the end of Christmas morning and he doesn't get the Red Rider BB gun with the compass and the stock and the thing that tells time. But then what happens after Christmas is over, boom, dad pulls out another present and there's this thing he's been longing for. The people thought that they had lost their Lord and there he is standing in front of them. And face to face with Jesus, right there in verse 17, we see unpacked so much of our experience of being a disciple of Jesus. They worshiped him, but some doubted. This is packed with theology right here. What do we see? Number one, Jesus is worthy of our worship. You see that? Christ doesn't reject the worship of his disciples. He doesn't say, no, don't do that. This is a problematic verse for our Jehovah's Witness friends. Elsewhere in scripture, when, when people attempt to worship an angel, you know what the angel does? The angel rejects it, says, no, don't do that. Get up. That only belongs to God. That is his. But when people bow to worship Jesus, you know what he does? Absolutely. Yes, that's right. That is good. He is the eternal son of God. He deserves our worship. I mean, one of, the, one of the ancient creeds of our faith, this sort of statement around um, who God is and what he's done in the world, the Nicene Creed, I think helps us a little bit right here. When it says of Jesus, he is begotten, but not made. He's begotten, but not made. Think of this in terms of an illustration for a moment. My son Bennett is begotten, right? He, he, he came from me. And he's made, right? Uh, several, I won't get into the graphic details, but children are made, right? Not so with the eternal son of God. He proceeds from the father. There's always been this father-son relationship, but hear me, it's been that way forever. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing in perfect unity together. 
This is why Jesus is worthy of our worship. He is God. He is eternal. He is the eternal one. And right here, when they bow at his feet, we are seeing a fundamental posture of the disciple of Jesus. Bowing at his feet. A disciple is a person who looks at Christ and no longer thinks of him as useful, but rather now thinks of him as beautiful. They see the glory of of who he is. They they love him. They want to please him. They enjoy him. Biblical discipleship is rooted in this posture. It's when we open the Bible for ourselves and, and with others, not simply to learn something more, but to encounter a person that we love. Do you want an authoritative word from God in your life? Open the Bible. Hear him speak with authority. The question is not, will you or won't you worship? The question is, will you worship the only one who won't ultimately destroy you? That is who Jesus the King is. Here's the second thing we see there in verse 17. Um, Doubt is an expected part of faith in a broken world. They are face to face with the risen Christ, y'all. Like how, how much more up close and personal can you get to the reality of the resurrection than Jesus is standing right before your face? And, and did you catch it? Their hearts are filled with doubts. For many disciples of Jesus who struggle significantly with doubt, there's usually something in us that says, man, if I, if I just had a sign if I just had something more concrete and a little less abstract, if I just had a significant emotional encounter with God, I could finally believe. Can I disappoint you and free you this morning? No, you wouldn't. They're standing here with Jesus and their hearts are filled with doubt. In a world broken by sin, doubt is going to lace the Christian experience. With the cultural wind that blows against us, doubt is going to rise up in our hearts and our experience. Friends, doubt isn't actually a lack of faith. It's actually just faith in the wrong thing. It's giving the unhelpful scrutiny and the spiral of never-ending questions more weight than the claims of the one who in history beat death. I'm not telling you to check your brain at the door this morning. I'm just telling you that's what doubt is, right? It's giving scrutiny. It's giving weight to the wrong thing. So friend, if you struggle with doubt, if you're like these disciples standing here in front of Jesus and doubt is limiting your worship, what do you do? Here it is. Doubt your doubts. Doubt them. Move your criticism from Jesus and over to your own cynical spirit and the never-ending questions that keep plaguing your mind. Place your faith in the right thing. Doubt and faith are not mutually exclusive experiences in this world. 
We long for the day that doubt no longer plagues us. And in Jesus Christ, it's coming. But first and foremost, right here, I want us to see that discipleship starts with worship. That's where we go first. Number two, discipleship is a command. I want you to paint a mental picture here with me for a moment. If you remember, we used to go to these things called restaurants. I don't know if you remember those. But you sit down and a a waiter comes to the table and takes your order. And if you sit down and you, like any good Christian, you order a steak, medium rare, right? If you're well done, folks, don't don't at me. Don't... (laughs) You order uh, a filet, medium rare, garlic mashed potatoes, some, some grilled asparagus right there. And the waiter goes back to the kitchen. And then 20 minutes later, they come out with a frozen chicken patty and a box of cereal. How are you going to feel about that? It's not okay, right? Like, this, this isn't what I ordered, right? This, this wasn't a suggestion. I wasn't just suggesting this is what I want. I was telling you, this is specifically what I want. I chose it off the menu. This was the desire of my heart. I wasn't asking for you to bring whatever you had. I was asking you for, for you to bring this specific thing. Friend, in his call to us to make disciples, Jesus is not suggesting Jesus is a king issuing a command to his people. Look at verse 18, how Jesus starts this declaration. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, what does a king do? A good one, at least, leads his people toward flourishing He calls the shots. He makes the edges of his kingdom very clear. Like this is where our border starts and this is where your border stops. If Jesus is a king with all authority in the power of his resurrection, there is no corner of the universe that Jesus isn't rightly called king. This week I was reading about space I don't know why, I, was just, I just came across an article and saw these images from the Hubble telescope. And as I was reading this passage and thinking all authority, I'm like, as far as the Hubble telescope can see, there Jesus is rightly named king. In the heart of the rainforest where no human being has ever stepped foot, Jesus is king. At the edge of your driveway, Jesus is king. In your bedroom, Jesus is king. And hear me. If Jesus were a tyrant, this should strike terror into our hearts. That there's a king with ultimate authority who can do whatever he pleases. But Jesus' ministry preceding Matthew 28 is meant to tell us what kind of king he's going to be. The same one who healed the sick and the blind, who spoke against the misguided religious establishments, who was himself showing us the glory of God, the Father. He uses his authority to right every wrong, 
to tear down every source of injustice, to gather the tears of his friends, and to execute his plan flawlessly. Jesus is king. And it tells us that whatever Jesus says next is not a suggestion. How do we respond? Verse 19 is meant to tell us. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Let's stop there just a moment. The word go right here could be accurately translated as you go. And the word disciple here is the word for pupil or learner. Taking those two kind of concepts together in light of the previous verse, we see clearly what Jesus is getting at right here. Before you are anything, you are a servant of King Jesus. And your primary responsibility given by him is to handcraft other servants, other learners of your king. I forget who said it, but I love this. They said, disciples are handcrafted. You're not making widgets in your life. You're helping shape people to look more and more like Jesus. If that's primary, serving Jesus and raising up other servants of him, the question then becomes, okay, are you going to make disciples as a doctor, as a stay-at-home mom, as an IT professional, as a church planter, as the random major that you invented? There's an implicit you in this command. With your unique skills, abilities, passions, how do you go about making disciples of Jesus? This is a primary question for every one of us. How do I use the life that God has given me as I go to make disciples of Jesus? Friend, all of your life is meant to run through the filter of God's purposes. How's he going to use this? Here's a, here's a real question for us. Are you treating the Great Commission like the Great Suggestion? Or are you bowing to the authority of your king? Number three, discipleship renews a whole person. A whole person. One of my favorite parts of seminary was learning about church history. And, and, and for some of you, you're like, oh gosh, sitting down and thinking about reading a history book about thousands of years of church history, for me, that just lights my soul up. And here's why. Because I began to learn and see these themes of different Christian traditions within the faith. Some of the modern ones here that are real popular that we would resonate with really uh, some of all of these, um, the evangelical folks, right? They love the Bible and theology. Can I get a what, what for the Bible? Come on, we're all about it. Our more maybe charismatic folks, they, they're, they love experiencing the power of God and call out to him in prayer for his work in the world. Our more maybe high church folks, like very ordered and regulated sort of gatherings. They love spiritual formation and they love service and justice in the world. And so you look at all these different kind of traditions under the Christian banner and you start to ask the question like, well, what is discipleship then? 
Is it filling people's minds with Bible and theology? Is it, is it getting our hearts full of passion and discernment? Is it helping people shape that? Is it, is it using our lives to serve others and meet needs in the city? And Jesus looks at us and says, yes. Discipleship has elements of all of these things. Look at the second half of verse 19. It says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Two things Jesus tells us to do in making disciples. First, baptize. Why baptism? Why now? Baptism was a regular practice in Jesus's day. In the temple, there was this pool called a mikvah, um, which is where people would walk down a staircase into the water and they would submerge themselves. They'd say some kind of quick prayer or blessing and then they'd go. It was a, a symbolic way of demonstrating uh, your ritual purity according to the Old Testament ceremonial law. It was a way of identifying a person, showing that, showing that there's a stamp of something about God on this person's Life And Jesus, like he does time and time again, he takes this practice and he uses it for his purposes. He says, when you, he's in essence here saying, when you sink below the surface of the water in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, you are being given a new identity. Baptism is an outward way that we declare our allegiance to God and his allegiance to us. It's an outward expression of an inward reality of what Jesus has already changed on the inside of us. What does it mean to be baptized in the name of the Father? It means that you're part of his family. It means that you're not a guest. Dare I say your picture is on the wall. And his family is sure filled with broken people, but hear me, it is not a broken family. Your father knows everything about you and he still loves you specifically and perfectly. And now you get to walk in freedom with all your new brothers and sisters with nothing to hide and nothing to prove because you are baptized in the name of the Father. To be baptized in the name of the Son is to recognize that you, as his follower, are an heir to everything that Jesus is an heir to. The complete love of the Father an eternity where he demonstrates the immeasurable riches of his kindness to you. And here and now, it means you are a servant of King Jesus. You follow his directives for life. Here and now, obedience isn't always easy, simple, or even joyful in the very moment. But friends, when we obey his commands, we are declaring that a day is coming when Jesus will say, jump. And from the depths of our hearts, we will joyfully and willingly say, how high, Lord. A day's coming when you won't have to struggle against sin any longer. And when you are baptized in the name of the Spirit, you are, you are acknowledging your identity as a sent missionary filled with power to tell people that the triune God of the Bible is not far from them. That through repenting in their sins, repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus, that you can have eternal life that begins now and lasts forever. If you are a follower of Jesus and you have not yet been baptized, I want to encourage you, get baptized. 
We would love to baptize you here. This is a great time for you to um, reach out to New City on the, on the contact page. We've got a little baptism form that will just guide our conversation there. Number four, and I'm almost done. Discipleship is where we experience the presence of the risen Christ. Look at the last half of verse 20. It says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Almost, almost two years ago now, when we moved to Champaign, we had six adults, two kids with one on the way, and one dog. And I have to count the dog because it was like whatever number we could get just felt important. We knew God had called us. Pandemic hits. And if I'm honest, we had plenty of moments when we asked the Lord, did you move us to Champaign-Urbana to abandon us? Verse 20 was a life raft. I am with you always to the end of the age. Why does Jesus say that to us? Because it's going to be hard. Standing firm where the world tells us to give in, it's going to be hard. Loving people who think that our unwillingness to endorse every element of their behavior somehow means that we don't love them or want goodness for them, it's going to be hard. Right here, following Jesus, making disciples, is where he, Christ, is no longer a concept. He is with us. And out here on the front lines with him, we get to experience a unique outpouring of his presence. He is with us in the weightiest way as we are with him on his mission. And so, friends, these are some of the markers of discipleship that Matthew 28 is compelling us toward. What I want to do is invite a friend who I think sincerely probably lives this out almost better than anybody else that I know personally. Um, my friend Shelby is going to come talk with us for a minute. We're just going to have kind of a Q&A moment. If you've got questions about what you've heard in the sermon, this is a great time to drop those in the YouTube chat. We're going to try to get to a couple of those as well. But if you'll give us just a minute, we're going to get set up here so Shelby and I can have a conversation about discipleship. Well, my friends, this is Shelby Chemnitz. Shelby serves as a campus multiplier on staff here with New City. So you spend a lot of time thinking about discipleship and making disciples. And so I'm grateful to get the labor with you. Um, why don't we dig into this? Let's spend some time talking about discipleship here. And don't forget, drop your questions in the YouTube chat. Yeah, so Nick, I have a question for you. Um, what practices have helped you live out your identity as a worshiper? Yeah, this, this is an important question um, because, remember, worship is the starting place of being a disciple of Jesus or inviting other people into discipleship. I think the first and primary um, discipline or practice that's been helpful to me as a worshiper um, is just the discipline of reading the Word of God, like opening this book consistently and regularly. Um, something can sort of happen when we... I think maybe 
one of the dangers, there's so many benefits, but one of the dangers of like, let's say a Bible in a year plan is that we just start reading um, to get through or catch up with our days and we miss actually opening this book and communing with the living God. You know what I mean? Like you start reading simply to just get through, get through the text so I can say that I've read the Bible. Hear me, there's a value in the discipline of it. Um, but actually sitting down and saying, Lord, what about your character are you gonna show me here? What unique facet of who you are are you going to, um, you're gonna reveal here? Um, I think that's been the primary one. Is there anything you'd add to that? I would say probably, yeah, just like marveling at the Lord mm. um, to kind of piggyback off of what you said. Just probably um, when you get into scripture to pray that the Lord would reveal something to your heart that is real and um, that you would walk away just marveling at Jesus. So good. It's like what, what stirs your affections for Jesus? What helps you sense the bigness of God as imminent as he is? Um, so for me, like one of the things that helps stir my affections for Jesus um, is getting outside. So like if you, if you see me taking a walk, like I'm usually praying for our city, praying for our church. But one of the things that I'm also trying to do is just paying attention to how has God displayed his glory in just a common grace of like the world. Right? I don't want to lose a sense of wonder at, uh, at who he is. That's good. Um, what do you think, Shelby, what are some of the biggest barriers that you see to people either making disciples or being discipled? Yeah. I think um, fear is a mm. big one. Um, so that kind of manifests itself in a lot of ways. Um, so for a disciple or discipler, um, fear of not being equipped enough I think I've seen is one of the biggest barriers. Um, people just think like, oh, I can't, I can't teach this person anything. Like, I don't even know myself what I would say. And so, um, so that's one of them. I think it takes a lot of vulnerability and humility on both sides. Like, you're going to sit down together and you're going to open up, like, really intimate parts of yourself with somebody and that's really hard to do. That's really, really hard to do. And that's for both sides. Um, and um, I think another thing is maybe some, maybe you're struggling with something, struggling with sin, and you're like, man, I don't think I can, I can do this if I'm, if I'm struggling with this. Mm. And so those are definitely some big ones. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think many of us have this conception of disciple making in our head. Um, that, that looks mostly like a classroom. Like I'm gonna sit down and I'm gonna teach you these doctrines and hear me, like that's very much an important part of discipleship, learning. Um, I think one of, one of the things that was reorienting for me, one of the spiritual fathers I had in my life early on, a guy named Tim Bueller, um, is that most of the time he was discipling me, it looked like going to Walmart, it looked like me running errands with him. It looked like me eating dinner with their family and me getting to watch him parent his kids in Jesus, you know? And it was like, as life happened, this is that as you go of the Great Commission, as life happened, he spoke into how does Jesus speak into us living out the truths of the gospel in this context? 
So became, man, are, if you have anything going on in your life, if you're, if you're living and breathing, you have a space that needs interpreted in the light of the gospel. Mm-hmm. That's what you get to do for people as you're discipling them. Yeah, yeah that's a good one. Very yeah, important. For sure. Um, so, Nick, what, which command of King Jesus feels the hardest to talk about in our cultural moment and why? Yeah, um, th- this is one of the areas where I think many of us will begin to feel tension in our souls as, as we're making disciples is like, where is the cultural wind blowing against the church the hardest? That's where I'm going to be tempted to want to apologize for the clear commands of scripture. But this is one of the places that as a disciple maker, we have to remember that like the commands of the Lord are good. They are not life robbing. They're actually life giving. They're restoring us to how the world is meant to work. I think a couple of the places where it's particularly hard right now um, are the conversations around um, gender and sexuality. Um, to embrace the biblical sexual ethics of Jesus, that marriage is um, a intimate covenant between God and a single man and a single woman, um, that sex is reserved for the bounds of those relationships, or that gender, male and femaleness, are actually good gifts of the Creator God and something to be stewarded and enjoyed. That is, at first, at first blush, is just a wildly unpopular thing to say in this moment. Um, and so I think those are places where we, we have to find resolve in our own hearts to go, how do I see this playing out as good and beautiful and good for the world? Because then when you talk about it, you talk about it from a theological perspective and you get to talk about it from an experiential perspective. How do I see embracing my maleness as a good thing, or you embracing your femaleness as a good thing. Um, And then obviously, like even as we have those conversations, our posture is shaped um, by love, love and honor, right? We're not not trying to be rude, but we do want to be very honest about those things. Yeah, Yeah, that's, I I think that's a big one. Mm -hmm. Um, Shelby, you have had a complicated season of ministry with college students being in and out and gone and in isolation. Um, what's maybe some wisdom or some just real practical helpfulness um, you'd give? How we can still reach people with the gospel while things are locked down the way that they are? Yeah. Thinking about this question um, was really convicting for my soul because a lot of the answers I would have to give, I often stray away from doing. (laughs) Um, And I'm learning um, just how to to trust in the Lord in these. And so it was good to think about these answers. Um, The first thing I would say is it seems kind of obvious, but it's one thing that I haven't done as much as I should, and that's to pray, Mm. (laughs) Um, to pray for God to move on students' hearts, to pray for God to move on the community, and um, that he would just make his name famous in in Champaign-Urbana and in the world. Um, The second thing, which kind of goes with prayer, is to pay attention. I think as we pray, we are paying attention to the things that are are going on around us. And I think often we can get on autopilot and um, not actually pay attention to the opportunities the Lord has given us. Um, And so, yeah, pay attention. Um, Another thing we can do is use our 
social media accounts um, to as yeah. platforms for the gospel. Um, we have, you know, the world at our fingertips, and I think we can we can use those to proclaim the truths of the gospel. People um, be predictable. This was one in particular that I was like, mm. man, I I know this is something I should do, and I haven't done it. Um, but go to the same coffee shop to pick up your coffee and have conversations with the barista. This is something that you have encouraged me to do, and others have. Um, yeah, build relationships with those baristas and cashiers at the grocery store and, and things like that. Um, yeah, that leads into my next thing is to be intentional. Instead of going through self-checkout, which I do very often because mm. I want to get out of the store. This is a hard one for yes. me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's very hard. Instead of going through self-checkout, go through the line and wait in line and talk to the cashier, ask them their name, things like that. Um, and then... I think lastly, but definitely not least, is become an expert in the gospel during this time um, and keep falling in love with Jesus. I think the only way that we can and will share it, share the gospel during this time, is if we're captivated by the love of God in Christ. That is so good, so important. Yeah, if, if worship doesn't precede mission, and mission doesn't flow out of worship, usually what happens is like gospel presentations kind of come across like a sales pitch, right? That you like, I'm going to open a can of evangelism and hand it to the person. Um, but man, when it proceeds out of worship, you, you, you embody the posture of the disciples, which was one where they looked at Jesus and said, where else would we go, Lord? Like the words of life are in you. Or when they stand before the rulers early in Acts and um, Peter's like, you can judge whether it's right or wrong, whether I'm talking about Jesus or not. But we can't not talk about this Lord who's changed everything. Um, that is such a powerful motivation in mission, like such a powerful one. Um, we've got uh, one other question here that came from online. Brittany asked about um, what next steps class um, talks about spiritual gifts and how can we apply our gifts to develop disciples? I love this question. That's good. You want to take a first crack at this or you want me to? You got it. Okay, I'm going to take a first crack and then I want you to add on this because I think you'll, you'll have a lot to value. Um, valuable stuff to say. Um, step number three in our next steps process is really all about um, how has God gifted and equipped me uniquely? What is the unique church context, new city that he's placed us in? And then what is this broad, what is Champaign-Urbana about? Um, and kind of when you see the overlap of those three things, what you begin to identify is like what I sort of call a missional sweet spot. It's like with these gifts in this unique city, with this church family, here's how I can uniquely um, be part of making disciples. Um, and so I'd encourage you, if you haven't gone through step three, for you to um, do that. The second part of that question, how can we apply our gifts to developing disciples? Man, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts there. Yeah, I think this is something that I have desired for a really long time and something that I've been able to grow in. And um, I think if you have a passion for um, children, you have a passion for worship, you have a passion for just loving people, um, whatever your gift is, um, 
bring someone alongside you in that gift. If you're gonna go take pictures, bring someone with you. If you're gonna create a, a music video, bring someone with you. I think it's just having someone tag along. And then as you're you know, doing whatever it is that you're doing, you're getting to know them, you're, um, you're loving on them and just inviting them into your life. So good. I think something I talk to our staff and our leaders about often is this idea of people development versus program management. That like when we think about, um, let's say the tech team, right? This takes a lot of technology and production for a live stream to happen like this. Tim is in the booth doing technology right now, right? Um, that thing matters, but the thing isn't the point. The thing really becomes a vehicle by which to develop disciples of Jesus. Because as you're serving together, what you're going to see happen is um, people's character come out, right, when you get under stressful moments. So it becomes a context by which to disciple others. So one way I think you can use those gifts is by serving in the church and by actually engaging in those spiritual conversations. Um, some of my favorite moments in the life of our church are like when we're setting up for this or when we're um, in, in these coming weeks, like working on getting the building ready, like the conversations that will yield. Um, I think out in, this, out in the city, um, uh, that's, that's part of the role of a disciple is to um, really try to discern like, okay, where has God given me passion or gifting? Where is there a need? Um, I think Henry Blackaby says, like, the work of the missionary is to find where God is at work and join him there. And so I think that's the first step I would take is just start asking the Lord, Lord, where are you at work in the world around me? Where are you at work? And what you're going to see is that God shuffled a you there to meet a specific need or to reach a specific person. Um, so the first part is just asking him, what are you doing around me? Um, Friends, I, uh, I, love, uh, I love this time. Shelby, thank you so much. Um, we operate as disciple makers out of a reality that Jesus has first called us to be his disciples. That he reaches into the dark recesses of our hearts and pulls us out. He forgives our sins. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And friend, if you are not yet a disciple, a learner of King Jesus yet, I want to invite you this morning to repent of trying to make life work on your own and to trust in the finished work of Christ on your behalf.